Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the globe. On today's episode, we've got two pirate stories, because don't all good stories involve pirates? First, we have the story of the Witta Galley, a ship built for the slave trade that was captured by pirates and captained by Black Sam Bellamy, where it became a part of the golden age of piracy. Then, we have the story of Albert Hicks, highwayman, pirate, and murderer, and the gruesome story that unfolded after the discovery of a ship covered in blood near the New York Harbor. Stay tuned after the first episode to hear the History Guy and I talk about pirates. Now, let me introduce the History Guy. Pirates are a common theme in popular culture. Much of what we know that we understand to be a pirate comes from Robert Louis Stevenson's book Treasure Island, or more accurately from British actor Robert Newton's portrayal of Long John Silver in the Disney adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's book Treasure Island. And also he performed in other pirate movies like Blackbeard the Pirate in 1952. And the idea of the pirate who hobbles around on a peg leg with a pirate on his shoulder saying, Arr! and ahoy matey, largely comes from him. Your, your understanding of a pirate might come from Errol Flynn or Basil Rathbone or Burt Lancaster or Johnny Depp. But the discovery of a shipwreck off of Massachusetts Cape Cod in 1984 tells us much about the life of some of the most successful pirates of the Golden Age. And like many things in history, the true story turns out to be better than fiction. It's a story of of adventure, of people who went on the high seas to find their fortune, of lost love of a search for a great pirate treasure that included literally a map where X marks the spot. The wreck of the Witta Galley is history that deserves to be remembered. Humphrey Morris was the very model of a success story in early 18th century England. While he was born to wealth, inheriting his father's mercantile business in 1689 at just the age of 18, he learned the merchant trade from his uncle and significantly grew his business, becoming so successful that in 1716 he became a director of the Bank of England. He was also a political success, becoming a member of Parliament in 1713, where he was a tireless advocate of trade, especially with Africa. In 1715, Maurice commissioned what was described as a spectacular merchant vessel, the Witta Galley, named after the West African port of Witta. 110 feet long, the ship was a galley, capable of propulsion by oar, but was also fully masted with three masts. It was a large and modern merchant vessel, with a cargo capacity, or what in the period was called Tons Burthen, of 300 tons. Captained by a Dutchman and former pirate named Lawrence Prince, the Witta Galley was built for the triangular trade. The Witta Galley would take manufactured goods, including textiles and rum, to the port of Witta in the modern-day country of Benin. There the goods would be traded for Africans. Humphrey Morris has since been described as the foremost London slave merchant of his time. The Witta Galley could carry 500 captive Africans, who would then be taken on the so-called Middle Passage to be sold in the West Indies, where the ship would be loaded with raw materials, especially sugar, to be taken to Europe. More than a million people were taken into slavery in the triangular trade between 1701 and 1725, 
and the Witta Galley was one of the most modern ships of that trade in its time. And as there was always a risk of running into pirates, she was outfitted with 18 guns for her defense. And the Witta Galley seemed destined to make Humphrey Maurice fabulously wealthy. On its maiden voyage in 1717, the ship carried 312 African captives across the Middle Passage to Jamaica, and as a result, had reported four and a half tons of gold and silver with which to acquire goods for the next leg of the triangular trade. But the Witta Galley was not, it turns out, destined for the triangular trade. In February 1717, the ship was navigating the Windward Passage between Cuba and Hispaniola when it came under attack by the dreaded pirate Black Sam Bellamy. Born in England in 1689, Bellamy had been a sailor in the Royal Navy. While it is difficult to separate fact from legend in his history, it is generally agreed that he immigrated to Cape Cod, Massachusetts around 1715, where he fell in love with a local woman, a beauty called the Witch of Wellfleet. Exactly who she was is a matter of disagreement. Her name may or may not have been Maria or Mary Hallett. She may or may not have been married. They may or may not have had an affair that resulted in a pregnancy. But it seems, whatever the story, whether to earn the approval of her parents or to acquire the resources needed to steal her from her husband, Bellamy left in 1616 to earn his fortune, accompanying a group of treasure hunters seeking a lost treasure on a Spanish shipwreck. According to legend, at least, he promised to return the captain of the greatest ship the world has ever seen, and Mary, or Maria, waited for him. The treasure hunting was, it seems, a bust, because by the summer of 1716, Bellamy had joined the crew of a notorious pirate, Benjamin Hornigold, and his first mate, Edward Teach, who would eventually become known as Blackbeard. Hornigold was a successful captain, but he was scrupulous about only attacking French and Spanish ships, apparently hoping to protect himself in case of capture by the English. That scruple proved unpopular with the crew, who mutinied, voting to replace Hornigold with a captain willing to rob anyone. Hornigold and Teach went their separate ways, and the crew elected Bellamy captain of their ship, a ten-gun sloop called the Mary Ann. Described as tall, strong, well-mannered, and tidy, Sam Bellamy turned out to be a brilliant pirate. He had a gift for strategy and outsailing his opponents so that they would give up without a fight, thus preserving their vessels. Known for wearing a black coat, from which he derived his moniker Black Sam, and for carrying four dueling pistols in his sash, Forbes magazine in 2008 rated Sam Bellamy as the highest-earning pirate in history. Eventually, Bellamy and his crews would take more than 50 vessels in the Caribbean and off the coast of America, and that earned an astounding sum, according to the magazine, the 2008 equivalent of more than $120 million in gold and silver. By February 1717, when they encountered the Widda, Bellamy had captured and outfitted a second vessel in addition to the Marianne, the 26-gun Galley Sultana. After a three-day chase, Captain Prince surrendered the Widda without a fight. Many of the crew of the Witta chose to join Bellamy. Also known as a fair man who once was quoted as saying, I scorn to do anyone mischief when it is not to my advantage, Bellamy gave Prince and the remaining crew of the Witta the Sultana and 25 pounds silver in exchange for not putting up a fight. He then made the Witta his flagship, adding another 10 guns to her deck, making it an impressive ship of war. Life aboard the Witta was strangely democratic, a place where the crew were equal regardless of race with odd rules, such as that if there were not enough hammocks for every man of the crew, then no one was allowed to sleep in a hammock. By April, Bellamy's fleet had grown to three ships, with the sloop and galley joining the Witta and the Marianne. On April 26th, they captured another sloop, carrying a load of wine. But the fleet became separated in a dense fog. 
The weather turned into a violent nor'easter. Possibly drunk from the wine they had captured, Bellamy and the crew of the Widdas, luck failed. Near midnight, she was thrown against a sandbank off the coast of Cape Cod. Beaten by gale-force winds, she was dismasted, capsized, and torn to pieces by 30 to 40 foot waves. Only two of the 144 people aboard made it to shore alive. 120 bodies washed up on shore. Among the dead was Black Sam Bellamy. True to his word, he had come to Cape Cod, the captain of a great ship, only to drown within sight of the shore where his love, the beautiful Witch of Wellfleet, awaited his return. In the aftermath, nine of Bellamy's crew were captured. In addition to the two who managed to swim ashore from the Widda, seven from the sloop that they had captured that night had survived after it too was wrecked in the storm. They had safely made it inland, but were apprehended at a tavern, and officials surmised that they were from the pirate ship's crew. The remaining ships of his fleet survived. The nine were tried as pirates, six were convicted and hanged, two were found to have been forced into piracy against their will and released, and a 16-year-old South American of the Mosquito people was sold into slavery. He turned out to be an unruly slave, and even he was eventually hanged in 1733. The governor of the province of Massachusetts Bay hired a cartographer to locate the wreck and recover the treasure. While looters had taken what of value had washed ashore, the wreck had broken up, and heavy objects such as the cannons and what the survivors said were 180 50-pound sacks of treasure, divvied up to be taken by the crew, were thought to have been spread out and buried by sand in the storm. But the cartographer, Cyprian Southack, made a map of the likely location of the wreck, a treasure map, where X marks the spot. In 1984, parts of the wreck of the Widow were located by underwater archaeological explorer Barry Clifford. Despite many people's failed attempts to find the shipwreck, Clifford says that he relied heavily on Southack's 1717 map. The wreck has proven to be a trove of information about life in the golden age of piracy, and more than 200,000 artifacts have been discovered below some 20 feet of water and 20 feet in sand. In 1985, he and his crew recovered the ship's bell, which has inscribed on it the words, The Widda Galley. 1716. That discovery makes the Widow the first ever pirate shipwreck from the Golden Age to be positively identified and authenticated, and the silver found aboard an authenticated pirate treasure. Among the wreckage, there appears to have been as many as 60 cannon on board, far more than the 28 guns that were mounted. This indicates that the crew had collected cannons, always prepared to outfit more ships. Also found was a leg bone, a femur, from a child between 8 and 11 years old. It was likely the remains of a boy named John King, who had joined the crew when his ship was captured in November 1716, said to be so insistent upon becoming a pirate that he threatened harm to his mother if he was not allowed to join the crew. At the time of the wreck, he was thought to be 11 years old, something of a real-life Jim Hawkins from Treasure Island, but with a more tragic end. The Boston Globe reported last February that some more remains were found in a sand concretion, along with a pistol and cufflinks, and some speculated those may be the remains of Black Sam Bellamy himself. DNA testing, however, found that the remains were not those of Bellamy. Clifford continues to do underwater archaeology and recover artifacts from the Widda, and speculates that there is much more still to find. He has detailed a discovery in several books, and selected artifacts can be viewed by the public at the Widda Pirate Museum in West Yarmouth, Massachusetts. Palsgrave Williams, who was Bellamy's second-in-command and commander of the sloop Mary Ann, had missed the storm because he'd gone to Rhode Island to visit relatives. When he heard about the fate of Bellamy and the Widda, he sailed back to the Bahamas and sold the Mary Ann and accepted a general pardon that had been offered by the British Crown in 1717, also called the Pirate's Pardon, for any pirate who promised to give up piracy. 
He fell eventually back into piracy, however, but retired and died of natural causes. Richard Noland, who commanded the third ship in their fleet, the Anne, also sailed back to the Caribbean and also accepted the pirate's pardon, but then he became a privateer for the Spanish. His final fate is unknown. Benjamin Hornigold, the pirate captain whom Bellamy and his crew had deposed, also accepted the pirate's pardon and then spent the next 18 months working for the governor of the Bahamas hunting pirates. He died when his ship was wrecked in a storm in 1719. Hornigold's first mate, Edward Teach, became known to the world as the pirate Blackbeard. He and Hornigold separated after being displaced by Bellamy, and according to Forbes magazine, Teach acquired the 2008 equivalent of some $12.5 million in treasure with his own crew. Teach also accepted the pirate's pardon, but slipped back into piracy, and was killed in a fight with the British Royal Navy in 1718. Lawrence Prince, the Dutchman and previous pirate who had been commanding the widow when it was captured by Bellamy, went back to England and continued as a captain in the slave trade. He made several other slave voyages, but his ultimate fate is lost to history. Humphrey Maurice, the foremost slave merchant of his time, eventually became governor of the Bank of England. But it turns out he was embezzling from the bank, as well as a trust fund left to his daughters by their uncle. He died suddenly in 1731. Some think he took poison as his crimes were about to be exposed. The wreck of the Witta Galley well represents the golden age of piracy, a time when men and even a few women risked their lives to find their fortune on the high seas. It is ironic that a ship that was built to take people into slavery was captured by men who were only seeking to be free in a time when the line between hero and villain was not so obvious. And it is strangely ironic that the richest pirate of the golden age of piracy was taken by the sea within sight of his final port. Fiction could not have come up with a more poignant end to the story. Now is the part of the episode where we get to sit down and talk to the history guy about what we just listened to, what we're going to listen to, and a little behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. So on this episode, I think we're talking about one of your favorite things, pirates. Is there pirates. any story behind Arr. the <laughs> Is there any story behind the don't all good stories involve pirates line? There is, and that is just that in some of the early episodes I was doing, I was shocked how many times pirates came up. And a couple that were really interesting is for example on the we did one on metrication on on why the United States has not moved to the metric system uh, as the rest of the world has. And one of the reasons is because the the first standard kilogram that we would have used as our weights and measures was was intercepted and stolen by pirates. Uh, and who, who guessed that that would have happened? And then I was doing the, the one on Washington's Eagle, which we, we talked about in the podcast. And in fact, John James Audubon was on a ship that was captured by pirates. And it was amazing, I guess, for a very long period of time, you couldn't cross the ocean without a very good chance to wind up in the hands of pirates. So it just, it worked its way into episodes that didn't make any sense at all. And so uh, that's why I started doing the line, don't all good stories involve pirates, because there so many stories involve pirates, uh, even, you know, where it didn't seem to fit. So we've done a few episodes just just on pirates, but for the most part, the pirates just kind of come in incidentally because because they do. I mean, according to legend, though it's probably not true, Timothy the tortoise was originally captured from pirates. Huh. And uh, it was Portuguese pirate ship that he was supposedly captured from is the, the story that they had. They had a, so they it, had a... it was just a... 
a fun thing that worked together with so many episodes. But it's also, you know, as a kid growing up, I was a boy. We played pirates. I love pirates. And still one of my favorite movies is uh, Captain Blood, uh, which is uh, that's Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland and Basil Rathbone uh, and those old uh, those old swashbuckling movies. And that the trailer to Captain Blood is in the public domain uh, because a lot of the movie trailers were never were never copyrighted. And so uh, I sometimes uh, very frequently, actually, if you notice, if we're doing anything where there's yeah, like ships of the old sailing age shooting at each other, uh, it's very difficult to get footage of that. So when you're seeing those ships and the, the shooting, it's probably stuff from uh, Captain Blood's trailer where, where they got their ships doing it. I shove those in all over the place uh, so that it looks like, you know, wooden ships are shooting at each other. And, and really, it's actually these old, these old films. Yeah, I understand. So part of it is... Yeah, why that I'm would sorry. be why it would be difficult to get the uh you, they didn't have yeah, cameras no, no one had a camera when they were when they were shooting at each other yeah so we just did one uh, uh recently on the, on the, the battle off of cape canaveral uh, florida that was one the last really american battle of the american revolution uh and i used you know pirate footage in there so part of it is my history is i you know i love pirates and the story of pirates and part of it is because as you go to study history you find a shocking amount of of american history is actually ends up being tied to pirates and so uh, it all became you know something that kind of turned into that line. Uh, and then the line was used enough. Now people are surprised anytime we put it up an episode that doesn't, I, I mean, the majority of our episodes don't have pirates, have pirates. but uh, but uh, but still a surprising number do have pirates and they work in ways to have pirates in there. And, and every time you don't have pirates, someone's like, what, what, no pirates? So the, the catchphrases of the history guy, uh, they, we didn't sit down and try to write those out. They sort of evolved and been became part of the episode though the you know deserves to be remembered history deserves to be remembered that was kind of there from the start but pirates just kind of evolved over time and now it's it's something that all of our fans recognize and we sell shirts that say don't all good stories involve pirates i think it's a lot of fun um the pirates because you know they're they're kind of uh villains in the mm -hmm. in in somewhat of an objective sense but you know we talk about uh, a lot of these pirates and there's there's still uh, there's a real interesting and kind of a, a draw to them. What do you think like makes that pirate's life seem desirable? It's a really good question because it's probably not a great life to be a pirate, to be honest. But uh, I mean, some of it is uh, uh, we we talk about the Witta Galley here. One of the one of the stories you find from the Witta Gallery is that if you were on a regular sailing vessel, uh, not everybody's treated equally. But on a pirate vessel, they really were. The captains and the officers were generally elected. Uh, there was usually a rule that treasure was split fairly evenly. Uh, if if you didn't have hammocks for everybody, then no one got to sleep in a hammock. So it wow. was truly a fair egalitarian place on a ship, which is not what you found on other ships. So there was some attraction to the pirate life, despite the fact that they were also murdering cutthroats who would steal people's property, you know, without a second thought and kill people quite frequently and things like that. Uh, so, I mean, there was something interesting to the, you know, that swashbuckling life. Uh, many of the people that were drawn to that life had been impressed into naval service against their will and or had no other choices in life. And it gave a relative freedom, a potential for wealth uh, and uh, a place where your contribution was respected. And a lot of that was missing anywhere else in society at the time. So I think there was some draw there. And then, you know, for us in the modern era, I think a lot of it is just because it's been so romanticized through movies yeah. and, and uh, even uh, even it, back penny penny novels and stuff adventure adventure novels they really worked into becoming you know kind of the basis for a lot of what were pirate movies yeah, and stuff yeah, yeah a lot of early sci-fi was dealing with with pirate how many people grew up on treasure island robert Louis stevenson it's become so much a part of our 
culture. And then in the the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, which came later. So even, you know, even kids that are growing up today or, or the yeah. adults today had that as a good chunk of their childhood. So they might not have been watching Captain Blood, but they were still watching these pirate movies. And so I, and there's just something freewheeling and open and adventurous about them. And you can see the, the fun of it, but it's as romantic as the Wild West. The Wild West was probably not all that romantic a place to live, uh, but it is a, a romantic place to think about historically. Yeah. I imagine they they struggled a bit more on pirate ships than they show in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. But yeah, yeah. It's, you, know, uh, you weren't you weren't generally on a pirate ship because you had choices in life. You were generally yeah. on a pirate ship because you didn't have choices in life. And yeah, we don't necessarily show that in the movies that, you know, the desperation or the hunger or the fact that you're always being hunted. And I, I, I'm sure it's not a great life to be a pirate. I mean, even today, if you I mean, piracy still occurs today. Uh, but for the most part, people that are engaging in piracy today, I mean, uh, that's probably the only way they really have to feed their family right now. Yeah. And if they go out and they're unsuccessful, they might not feed their family. And if they go out, they know that their life is at risk. And I don't think people are choosing any, you know, I don't think people ever chose piracy because it was romantic. Uh, I think that people chose piracy because, you know, that's that was a path that was led down to. So I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to romanticize piracy with our, you know, talking about don't all good stories involve pirates, but it is a quirk of history uh, that pirates, you know, were kind of a fulcrum in so many ways. And there are a huge number of pirate stories that we've yet to tell yeah. on the history guy, which I hope that we will get to on the history guy, though I think we've told some very good ones. Magellan TV is sponsoring this podcast, and we'd like to thank them for making it possible for us to continue to do these podcasts. What have you been watching on Magellan TV lately? Yeah, I have to say, uh, as a history guy, you'd think I'd spend all my time watching history, but of course I spend you know my work time studying history, and so I find myself a lot of times drawn to other documentaries. I still love and prefer documentaries, but uh, I've been watching recently on Magellan uh, space documentaries, and one I was just watching today is called Venus, Death of a Planet. It's one of those that's done in ultra high def, it's a 4K, uh, and it's talking about uh, how little we really know about Venus, and it's really an interesting documentary, and it's a sort of one where they're using all the footage that we have, it gives a good historical background of the study. And of course, the odd coincidence that the, the probe that we sent to Venus back there in the 80s was was called Magellan is a great fit for Magellan TV. So I really highly recommend it. It's really uh, one of those where you get a lot of the ooh and ah pictures of NASA and you find out an awful lot about uh, one of the planets that's nearest to, to the Earth. You know, that's when they call the sister planet because it's close to the same size, but very, very different otherwise. I watched a, a documentary, a really cool one called The History of Sex and Love with uh, Terry Jones of Monty Python fame. Rest in peace. We just lost him last year, but it was really quite interesting. And of course, he's I mean, he's entertaining. <laughs> he really pulls the pulls the whole thing across. But I mean, it's the history of how we've talked about love and how sexual revolutions throughout the ages have, you know, have caused all kinds of, of things defacing Roman statues. One of the great things about Magellan is that they have so many options so that you can go between learning about Venus and are the scientific things we're talking there and then going back and learning about how the church has policy around sex and love has affected history. It's mm -hmm. just such an amazing resource. And it's really cool that, you know, they try to get all of these the best documentaries that they can find and they bring new ones every week. 
and there's mm -hmm. always something new to watch. I was just looking through the new releases and there's a bunch of stuff <laughs> since ever even since the last time I checked that are that I'm really excited about seeing. So we're very proud that they sponsor us and that they've been sponsored both here and in YouTube and we love working with them. But the you know the bottom line is I think that we're both legitimately fans of this. And we're yeah. when we go to talk about Magellan, it's not just because they're paying for the podcast, it's because it is truly a great service. You know, you got all of these subscription services that are going on in the world today, more of them are opening up and stuff that used to be regular on television now. Now they're looking at turning those into subscription all that's, that's going on you're not going to get better use for your subscription dollar and not very many dollars it's just not that expensive yeah. you're not going to get better use than you would get out of magellan tv where you get these really good high quality uh, documentaries across such a breadth of different topics made by filmmakers who are part of making the channel which is part of why it's so exciting because they really have the vision of what they want to do and of course we always have a special deal for fans of the history guy if you go to try.magellantv.com slash history guy. Sometimes you'll get a free month. You'll get a deal on annual memberships. Subscribe to Magellan TV and just learn. Next up, we're going to hear the history guy talk about Albert Hicks, the last pirate of New York. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the history guy. In the early morning hours of March 21st, 1860, the J.R. Mather, a ship carrying molasses, ran into another ship in Lower Bay near New York Harbor, which was a bustling maritime port at the time. The two ships struck so hard that pieces of the ship they struck landed on the deck of the Mather, so the crew of the Mather yelled back to the other ship to ask if anyone had been injured. They got no response. Ben Nickerson, the captain of the Mather, took it back to New York for repairs, where he told sailors who were waiting to go to see the tale of this mysterious silent ship out in the bay. The next day, another ship, the Telegraph, discovered that ship in the bay as dawn was rising. They went aboard and, to their horror, discovered that the deck appeared to be awash with human blood. What they didn't know at the time was that they had discovered the work of a man named Albert Hicks and the remains of a ship called the E. A. Johnson. And that crime, the investigation, and the trial that followed dominated headlines in New York City for the next year until 1861 when the Civil War started and it was pushed from the headlines and essentially lost to history. But what happened that night in the Bay and what followed is a piece of early American history that deserves to be remembered. After the grisly discovery aboard the E. A. Johnson, it was dragged back to harbor for police to begin a criminal investigation. New York City Police Captain Hart Weed described the deck as besmeared with blood and noted some light-colored hair lying near the mast. Chillingly, he also found severed fingers on the deck. The cabin was in shambles with everything valuable stripped away, but attempts had apparently been made to clean up the floor. The ship's jolly boat, similar to a modern-day lifeboat, was missing. Behind the ship's stove, we found three holes had been made in the floor, probably with a poker. He surmised that whoever created the scene on the ship had been trying to sink her in order to hide his crimes. But fortunately for the authorities, the holes had become clogged and the E.A. Johnson had floated on, preserving evidence for their investigation. Weed and the rest of the New York police force determined that they were looking for not just a murderer and a thief, but a pirate. And don't all good stories involve pirates? Their definition of a pirate, according to true crime author, historian Rich Cohen, was any criminal who made a living on the water, attacking and robbing ships beyond the jurisdiction of the landlocked coppers. In the 1850s, an estimated 500 pirates may have lived and plied their dastardly trade near the New York City harbors. The New York newspapers picked up the story and ran it as their headline, Murdered Sloop Haunt City Ghost Ship Horror, 
In fact, the paper that became the New York Times reported on the Albert Hicks case so successfully that it was one of their breakout stories that led to the becoming one of the leading papers in the area. Through the newspaper coverage, the author of the horror was tipped off that his handiwork had been discovered by police, and he fled the city. Times reporter Elias Smith, who rose to fame during the American Civil War when he reported from the front as part of the staff of General Ambrose Burnside, took up the story. He attached himself to police detective George Nevins, who was assigned to the investigation. Smith's reporting on the investigation is why historians know so much about what happened next. Unlike detective work today, there was no DNA evidence or fingerprint technology available to the detectives. For starters, Nevins was looking for witnesses, someone who'd seen something unexpected on March 21st. From the ship's manifest, the police defined a name, William Johnson. Later they would find out that this was an alias for a man named Albert Hicks. They began the search on Staten Island, asking everyone who lived there if they'd seen a disheveled man come up from the beach on March 21st. And they found their witnesses. A horse stabler described seeing someone who appeared nervous and restless that fateful March night. Another man, a farmer, saw him too and spoke to him. He was about 200 yards off, coming towards me, and he had a big bag on his shoulder. The farmer described the man with the bag as wearing a, a blue coat and a distinctive flat hat. Detective Nevins had his starting point. They continued along the mysterious man's trail. The man flashed money around at a local tavern, witnesses said. He tried to pay his bill with a coin that was too big for the barkeep to break. The trail looped around and led the detective and reporter back to New York City, where they spoke to a boy who had carried the man's heavy bag for a time. The boy led investigators to the corner of Cedar and Green Streets in Manhattan. There the trail went cold. The case may never have been solved if the owner of an apartment house at 129 Cedar had not come to the police the next day, saying one of his tenants had come back early from his job at sea with more money than he probably should have had. The suddenly wealthy man staying at 129 Cedar had a wife and an infant baby. The owner also said his tenant had packed up his belongings and fled, most likely to Massachusetts or Rhode Island where he believed his tenant had family. Through their investigation, Detective Nevins and the reporter found the man going by the name William Johnson and his family at a boarding house in Providence, Rhode Island. Among his belongings, there was a watch, knife, and locket, and two bags that police identified as belonging to the captain and sailors, the E.A. Johnson. William Johnson was taken into custody and said he also went by the name Albert Hicks. Nevins brought Hicks back to New York City for trial. On the way, crowds stirred up by the extensive coverage in the newspapers fought to see the suspect on the train. There's the murderer! Lynch him! they cried. Detective Nevins told the man, I'll shoot the first man who touches you. He delivered Hicks to the New York Marshal, who opened up his office and allowed the crowds to wander through and get a good look at the notorious suspect. Elias Smith reported, Hicks sat handcuffed in one corner of the room and met the scrutinizing gaze of his multitude of visitors without betraying the slightest emotion of any kind. Many expressed disappointment at Hicks' appearance. They believed he was too attractive to be capable of the crimes for which he was accused. They went into the marshal's office to see a monster, and instead they found a man. Hicks' wife, whose name isn't recorded by the newspapers, visited her husband when he was in prison and jail in the tombs, a prison on Central Street, New York. Reporters said she cried and cursed him. She held up their child and said, Look at your offspring, you rascal, and think what you have brought on us. If I could get at you, I would pull your bloody heart out. Hicks replied, Why, dear wife, I've done nothing. It will be all out in a day or two. The two had met when the unnamed wife's family had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland on the ship, the Isaac White. Her family had apparently not approved of the match and warned her that they didn't know or trust Hicks. Despite their disapproval, she married him in April 1853. The infant she held in her arms was their only child together. The trial of Albert Hicks began March 14, 1860. 
because the prosecution could not find the bodies of the sailors from the E.A. Johnson. They could only charge him with robbery or, as they found the charge preferable, piracy. Piracy was based on a federal statute that basically said that if someone commits a robbery on a body of water, they are a pirate and can be executed for the offense. The traditional punishment for piracy was to be hanged by the neck until dead. A sentence for the crime of robbery would have only netted Hicks a decade or so in prison, but the prosecution was out for blood. Among the numerous witnesses who spoke against Hicks were the families of the murdered men, ship captain George Burr, Oliver Watts, and Smith Watts. They identified some of the items found in Hicks' possession and as belonging to their slain loved ones. One of the men, Oliver Watts, had been carrying a locket with a photo of his sweetheart, Catherine Dickinson. The locket was found with Hicks when he was taken into custody in Rhode Island. Catherine positively identified the item as belonging to Oliver Watts because she was wearing its match around her own neck. The jury took only seven minutes to reach a verdict. They decided, we the people find the defendant guilty of piracy on the high seas. The judge sentenced Hicks to death. When he asked Hicks, is there any reason why the sentence should not be passed to you? The pirate replied, I have nothing to say. His execution was scheduled for July 13th on Bedloe Island, the traditional spot for hanging pirates. Later, Bedloe Island would be famous for being the location of one of New York City's most famous landmarks, the Statue of Liberty. Hicks sold a lengthy confession to publishers to be printed on the day of his execution in a final effort to provide for his wife and child. It was entitled, The Confession of Albert W. Hicks, Pirate and Murderer, Astounding Confession and Startling Developments Made by Hicks the Pirate, Ready This Day, the Day of Execution. In it, he documented a life of crime, robberies, and murders, both on the sea and off of it. He said he couldn't account for all the people he had killed, but wrote that the number could be in the hundreds. Historians aren't certain of the accuracy of Hicks' account, but in his book, The Last Pirate of New York, Rich Cohen believes at least some of the confession is probably true. Hicks also detailed the bloody night on the E.A. Johnson and the final moments of the sailors on her. He recalled using an axe to fell the three men. As he was resting after the struggle, one of the sailors rose to a feet and came at Hicks in a final burst of effort. Hicks said he tried to throw the injured man overboard, but as he did, the sailor held onto the deck railing and would not let go. Hicks chopped the man's fingers off, which the police later found, and cast the unfortunate into the waves. He said, My bloody work was done. Dead men tell no tales. The day of Hicks' execution seemed like a party with singing and laughter among the thousands who showed up to see the pirate hang. Hicks, in his electric blue suit, was one of the last men to be executed for piracy in the United States, and according to the New York Times, was the last man to be publicly executed in New York City. Though he had little to say in the moments before he died, before he was transported to Battle Island, he said, I shall go to the gallows cursed by all who know the causes which will bring me there. And my only hope is that God will, in his infinite mercy, grant me that spirit of true repentance which may lead to pardon and forgiveness in the world to come. At the gallows, Hicks told his executioner, Hang me quick! Make haste! He was declared dead around 11.45 a.m. and raised once more into the air to give the departing crowds one final glimpse of the notorious pirate named Hicks. Shortly after his execution, Albert Hicks' body disappeared. Most likely it was taken by body snatchers, who were people that dig up cadavers and sell them to medical schools, but because the body was missing, that led to unfounded rumors for years that Hicks had somehow survived the execution and lived on. While Hicks was in jail, many more people wanted to see him than were able to come see him, and so the legendary showman P.T. Barnum offered Hicks a new suit of clothes in which to be executed in exchange for his old suit of clothes 
and a life mask that Barnum could use to make a wax figure of Hicks. Barnum said, I shall place the figure prominently in my museum, and millions will come to see him. And they did until the figure was destroyed in a fire, which happened to occur on July 13th, 1865, exactly five years to the day after Hicks had been executed. By then, the nation had lived through the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. People were mourning the war dead and the loss of the president that saw us through the war, and no one cared anymore about Albert Hicks. But just a few years previously, his name had been on everybody's lips. And it maybe still lives with us today, because some historians believe that the macabre reputation of Friday the 13th was partly solidified because it was on Friday the 13th that they executed Albert Hicks, the last pirate of New York City. Albert Hicks is, a, is an interesting case. He's a horrific murderer and a pirate at a time when piracy and crime was really changing. And he's, he's maybe not your prototypical pirate, necessarily, of the Golden Age. Rich Cohen, who wrote a book on Hicks, and you mentioned him in the, in the story, called him the first legendary gangster figure of New York City as part of this kind of transfer. Do, do you agree with that assessment? There's reasons that people say that about Albert Hicks. It certainly wasn't a quintessential pirate. There's a reason they call him the last pirate of New York. He was doing piracy after piracy had, had pretty much been eliminated. But uh, part of that, interestingly, comes from his fashion. He wore a long trench coat and he wore this big broad hat uh, and apparently uh, used some sort of unique language and all sorts of stuff that started to become the kind of the version of where piracy turned into organized crime. So I think Cohen makes a good argument about that. I think it can be, you know, overstated. I mean, obviously, whenever we're trying to, you know, tie the past and the present, then there's going to be gaps in between. But he he really was a kind of a transition and a transition to kind of how organized crime really operated. And then that ended up, of course, becoming a big part of New York City, organized crime, especially in the docks and stuff like that, continued to be tied to the seafront long after piracy. So yes, and that's an interesting thing about Albert Hicks is that he was really a unique kind of thief. And that's one of the reasons why his trial was so spectacular and his crimes were so spectacular and that he's you know worth talking about. And he crosses, um, he spends a lot of time robbing stagecoaches and stuff in the West too. And that's kind of interesting that he, from the from the seafronts and from the city gangster kind of crimes, and then also the Wild West stuff. Yeah, and, and a person who is unique enough in character that it, that it becomes something that becomes, you know, kind of a, a, you know, a meme, a legend in itself. Yeah. And that's, of course, his, I mean, the, his last crime that he gets caught for is just horrific to yeah, some extent you know pirates they will also <laughs> just murder you in cold blood True. so that you know to, there's to that downside extent, of the piracy to some extent uh very fortunate that the boat didn't sink when he drilled the holes in it because uh that was it, maybe his, the only... that was that was his goal he probably wouldn't have been caught if he had yeah. successfully sunk that ship yeah so he is he's a fascinating historical character and it is fair to say that he maybe represents a transition period uh, between kind of the old and the modern and, and in both in terms of crime and in terms of how we see crime. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history. And if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, and on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.